Now, to get our bearings, let's go back to chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. This is really crucial that we understand where Paul is in the flow of the argument. Three things we saw in this initial paragraph. One, many Jewish people, many Israelites are accursed and cut off from Christ. Paul says it in a way that is indirect by saying, I could wish that I myself were in their place, accursed and cut off from Christ. In spite of all their benefits and advantages and privileges listed here in 4 and 5, they're lost, they're perishing. He has great sorrow about that. He has it all the time, in spite of how joyful he is. And Jesus Christ is God over all. That's what we saw And that is a posing of the problem to be solved. And the problem to be solved is. Has the word of God fallen? So he says in the next verse, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And the reason it seems to have failed is that the Israelites are God's covenant people. God's covenant people don't go to hell. What's the point of being covenant people of God if you perish and get cut off from the Messiah and are lost? And so it looks as though the covenant is meaningless. It looks as though the promises aren't coming true and the word of God has fallen. And so he asserts that's not the case. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And then his first answer, and he's only given one so far, and there are two more coming in chapter 11. It's... Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham, covenant people, children of promise, just because they're his physical offspring. That's his first answer. When many Jews perish, they're simply not part of the covenant people to whom the promises apply. Which raises, of course, the question of, Well, what kind of distinctions are being made here among Israelites? Like Jew from Jew, some are Israelites and some are not Israelites. Some are children of Abraham and some are not children of Abraham. What's going on? And he opens up the doctrine of election. And he develops it in these verses 6 to 13 that God chooses Jacob, not Esau, Isaac, not Ishmael as an illustration of what happens throughout history. And, of course, that introduces for him the whole question, is God unjust in selecting one unconditionally and not the other? And so he develops an argument in defense of the justice of God from verses 14 to 23. And then in verses 24 to 29, he not only reaffirms that some from Israel, not all, but some from Israel are vessels of mercy, covenant children. True Israel, children of Abraham, but also from Gentiles. There are some included in this saved, redeemed covenant people. And that, of course, raises a question. How can Gentiles be included in the covenant people? And so from chapter 9, verse 30 to the end of chapter 10, he explains two things. One, justification by faith. 
built on a doctrine of unconditional election, the way of salvation is now not works, not law keeping, but attachment to the Messiah. And then he unfolds in verses 14 to 21 at the end of chapter 10 and therefore missions. Missions to Gentiles, missions to Israelites. Because they're lost without the Messiah. And that's where we are now. He has only given one argument in defense of the statement, the word of God has not fallen. And the argument has been, not all Israel is Israel, and some Gentiles are. Now, here we are at chapter 11. And you'll recognize his return to the argument. I ask then, has God rejected his people? So you see where he is. He's at chapter 9, verse 6. He's never lost sight of his argument. He knows what he's been doing and where he's going. And, of course, you know, the reason this is so urgent is because the first eight chapters of the book of Romans are as glorious as it gets for us Gentile believers. And if God isn't faithful to his promises, they're worthless. And therefore, he must show God has not rejected his people. So he answers By no means. I haven't rejected my people. Now, he's already given one answer to why he hasn't rejected his people or how he hasn't rejected his people. And the answer is, not all Israel is Israel. And I've been faithful to the remnant. The elect remnant. That's not the answer he gives now. Here's the new answer. Answer number two. For... That's an argument, right? Whenever you have a sentence that starts with for, getting support. By no means has God rejected his people Israel. For I myself am an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham. A member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What's his answer? His answer is, I'm Jewish and I'm a Christian. So God hasn't rejected Jewishness. I'm a I'm part of the remnant. The way I would paraphrase this argument is. There will always be a remnant of ethnic Israel in every generation. There'll always be somebody around who's attached to Jesus by faith in him, who's Jewish. Which is why I support with all my might Jews for Jesus. As radical and controversial as that crazy group is. (laughs) I love the evangelism of Jews for Jesus. They're just so in your face and happy in doing it. No group in America gets persecuted more than Jews for Jesus. Billy Graham doesn't get persecuted like Jews for Jesus does. Because it is so controversial. Put a big t-shirt on. Jews for Jesus. And walk out in New York City. With a big smile on your face. And hand out tracts to people that look Jewish. And ask them what they think of Jesus. I mean that will get you spit on. Big billboard signs. About Jesus being the Messiah. They've got this great campaign uh, yeah, behold your God, B-Y-G, big. 
And uh, they came to Minneapolis. We housed them. Man, did we get in trouble. We got so much flack from the clergy downtown Minneapolis. <laughs> Almost all the clergy in the big churches downtown Minneapolis think Jews are saved without believing in Jesus. And think it is it is arrogant to tell a Jew to believe in Jesus. It's tragic how many shepherds in Minneapolis reject the necessity of believing in Jesus Christ. All that to say, there will always be a remnant of Jewish people who believe in Jesus Christ. Paul is one of them. Now, to stress this remnant idea, he goes back. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they killed your prophet. Here's poor, you know, down in the mouth, Elijah. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. A lot of pastors feel that way. Elijah felt that way. Not true. And they seek my life. And what does God's reply to him? What is God's reply to him? Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even when times look very bleak, God is doing things you don't know. He's doing things you do not know. I was talking to one of you about our dreams for the Islamic world. You ought to dream some crazy dreams for the breakthroughs of God in Islam and Hinduism and the big blocks of the 1040 window that look impermeable because of political and religious fanaticism. Take yourself back to the mid-80s. I can picture myself in the pulpit in the mid-80s at Bethlehem, lifting my hand in a missions week and saying, when I read some statistic about by the end of the 20th century, X number of countries will be closed. And I, I just shouted, said, how did they know they will be closed? What kind of predictions of those as though there were no Holy Spirit? As though there were no sovereign God. And then I referred to Albania. We had somebody going to visit Albania. The, the most closed country in the world. The most unchurched, pagan, atheistic, irreligious country in the world is coming down. Four years it happened. Thousands of Christians in Albania today. Hundreds of churches. The fall of the wall at the end of the 80s was unthinkable 10 years earlier. And today, what's unthinkable? A thousand churches in Saudi Arabia. That's what's unthinkable. So pray it. I have no idea how it could happen. I have no idea. That's why God causes virgin births. <laughs> or one at least. And causes Sarah. To have a baby. That's the whole point of these chapters. Isaac will be my seed, not Ishmael. Yeah, you can get together and make a baby with Hagar. I'll make babies out of barren women 90 years old and men who are 100. I put churches in Saudi Arabia. And so what he's saying here is there's, there's always a remnant and there's always going to be one. And here's the key way to look at it. I have kept for myself. 
There's the key. I do this. You don't do it, Elijah. They don't make it happen. I do this. I always be sure that there is a remnant who don't bow the knee to Baal. And so he draws the conclusion. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So let me draw out a few things there about this remnant. First, just the general statement that the second answer to the question, has God rejected his people and has the word of God fallen? Is he faithful to Israel? The second answer is there's always a remnant saved by grace and elect by grace. So observation number one here, he returns to election just like he did in chapter nine, verses six to 13. This word literally is According to the election of grace. So that word chosen behind is the same word as in 9-11. Grace. I mean, election. And in fact, here it shows up again in the next paragraph. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. There's where the remnant comes from. So isn't it interesting that when Paul comes back to the issue of how there is always a remnant, he doesn't just come to by grace, through faith, based on Christ, the gospel dimension. He goes under it again to that before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ Jesus and puts his finger on election. The elect obtained it. The rest were Hardened. So that's the first thing to observe. Same thing as before. Second thing to observe. This election is called by grace. This is an election by grace, which is his way of saying it's unconditional. Not by works, but by him who calls. Chapter 9, verse 11. Or by grace. Grace versus works. Not just faith versus works, but here it's grace Versus works. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. If election were because of God's foreseeing anything we do, which is what a lot of people think about election. God foresees what we do and on the basis of what we do, he not chooses us. That's just playing playing games. That is absolutely contrary to what Paul is teaching here. It is not on the basis of what we do before they were born or had done anything good or evil, had done anything good or evil. He said the elder will serve the younger. He's coming back to call that now an election according to grace. And I just want to put one other text here for you to look at about grace in this regard. This is a familiar text, but notice something that you may not have noticed before. Ephesians 2. Start with verse 1, then I'll leave out 2 and 3. You were dead. You were dead. All those Jews were born dead. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then you get this great, but God, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a great sermon one time. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love. Rich in mercy. Because of the great love. With which he loved us. Even when we were dead. In our trespasses. Made us alive. Together with Christ. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, my question is, why did Paul break his grammar and sentence to insert that sentence right there? Why did he put it there? He had a nice sentence going here. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him. It's just flowing so nice. And he wrecks the sentence. With glorious truth. Why here? The reason, I think, is because of what Paul said. Here, namely that election is by grace, not by works. And the way to show that here is to just at the point where you have said great love, call that grace if you want, great love has made you alive. By grace, you've been saved. Grace comes before faith, makes you alive. So that you can believe a dead person can't believe a dead person can't repent. A dead person is in rebellion and ignorance and hardness and resistance. And we pray down. We pray down this love. We pray down this grace and it makes alive so that we're not dead to Christ anymore. So that suddenly, like it says in first Corinthians one. Preach the gospel, which is a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the gospel, Bill Graham preaches the gospel. That's the general call of God. It goes out over thousands of people. And then the Holy Spirit takes the word of God, moves. Remember that? That drawing last night moves around down into the heart and does another kind of calling. I and you can issue a general call that doesn't save anybody by itself. God has to issue an effectual call like he did for Lazarus. Lazarus is dead, right? Jesus stands at the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. And that call creates life. The call does the saving. So that call goes in and through Billy Graham's powerless call and makes it life giving by the, the Holy Spirit moving into a heart and doing this. And if he does that before a person believes so that they can see Christ as beautiful, be drawn to him, walk to the front. Get right with God. Live a life that's totally new. Then Paul knows election is by grace. 
because God did this while they were dead. They didn't meet any conditions in order to be in this position of grace. And so back here in 11.5, there is at the present time a remnant. How did it come to be? God, number one, chose them by grace. And number two, made them alive by grace, not by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, which is why, you know, the, the things that I've been teaching here are sometimes called Calvinism and sometimes called Reformed theology. But a, a, a good name to put on them is the doctrines of grace. Historically, that's what the Puritans love to call the gospel, the doctrines of grace. And when they use the word grace, <laughs> It was a much weightier thing than it is today. And I hope you will put. I hope you will put a lot of weight on it as well. That's the second thing I wanted to observe in that unit. That um, grace is the ground of election. I've already pointed out that God takes the initiative to make sure there's a remnant. I have kept for myself 7000 men. But notice this word kept. That not only implies what's here, namely, it came into being by grace and election, but it's being kept. And some of us have talked in little groups here afterwards about the doctrine of perseverance, which follows from the doctrine of election and the doctrine of irresistible grace by which God awakens people and brings them to himself. What about this issue? One of the women asked about falling from grace and we're going to see some texts in a few minutes that look like that. You will be cut off if you don't believe from the tree. So I want to show you a text that confirms this I keep for myself. This is why, I, you know, if, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God in the preservation of his saints, I don't know how you go to bed at night with any confidence that you will wake up a believer in the morning. I mean, why do you think you're going to wake up believing in Jesus tomorrow morning? Why should you? You, you think that's because your will is so stable? That you're such a steady, consistent, persevering person and that your will is rock solid and what you desire today, you will most definitely desire in the morning. Ha! We are as fickle. Our emotions are high, low, up, down. I desire one thing today, a different thing tomorrow. I'm, I like my wife today. I don't like my wife tomorrow. It's just I'm all over the place. I am as like water dribbling out on the sand. Apart from the Holy Spirit keeping me. Drawing me, granting me. That's what he's saying here. I keep for myself a remnant. Now look at it here. Oops, that's not it. Where is it? Oh, it's on that other sheet. Here it is. This is one of my favorites. There are a lot of these in the Bible. This is a covenant promise, a new covenant promise. What have I, what have I done here to create that shade? What? I'm covering over the lens. Gotcha. 
I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. That's Ephesians 2, 5 made them alive that they may not turn from me. The elect will be kept. Read the book of Jude, one chapter. It begins with keeping and it ends with keeping. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish with rejoicing before the throne of God. To him be glory forever and ever. The great truth of the keeping power of God. If you believe in ultimate self-determining free will, you have no security. If, if you believe the bottom line in my salvation is me, my fickle will, I don't know how you survive the life and pressures and struggles and battles of faith and doubt and attacks on you. How in the world do you survive when you believe that? You know, you don't believe that in your heart of hearts, even if you've been taught to believe it in your head. Because you pray differently than that. I know you do. You pray when you go to bed, God, keep me and wake me up. I'm crazy about these things. You know, I go to bed at night and I always sleep on my left side. I cannot sleep on my right side. Happened about 15 years ago. I don't know what happened. I, ha- I have the feeling it has to do because you've got the blood flows out of the left side of your heart. You know, pump, pump, pump like that. And if you sleep on your right side, my heart says, I'm working harder. Turn over. So anyway, I always sleep on my left side. And I'm, I'm lying like this. And way often... Way more than you think would a normal person would do. I take my pulse. I just lie there like this. And sometimes I turn my watch around and count it. One, two, three, four. And you know why I do that? I do it because it reminds me of how unbelievably fragile I am. Boom. Boom, boom. And I'm in heaven or hell at 3 a.m. and never got a chance to do anything about it. It's just over. R.C. Sproul tells the story of the birth of his first grandson. And his mother said, this is the happiest day of my life. And went to bed and never woke up. I hope it happens like that. And I hope I've done this the night before. Because when I do that, I say, Lord, is there anything between us? So that if I woke up at 3 a.m. and I had to pinch myself because you were standing in front of me, I say, Ooh, dream. And you would say, not a dream. You're my hands. Touch me. I don't want there to be any problem. I want there to be rest, peace, joy. My will doesn't get me to that point every day and doesn't keep me at that point. God does. I, they will not turn from me. I will put the fear of me in their hearts 
So I love the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and the keeping power of God. So that's there in the word kept. One last thing before we move on to a new paragraph. Uh, in verses 8 to 10, you've got this, this painful doctrine of hardening again. Right? We saw it with Pharaoh, chapter 9, verse 18. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I harden whom I harden. He comes back to it again. You want to say, Paul, we saw that. We saw that. We handled that. And here he is again. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Explanation, ultimately, the elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. There it is again. As it is written, quotes Isaiah, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And then he quotes Psalm 69. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. I just point this out. We're not going to linger on this anymore. I just point this out because sometimes we stumble over the imprecatory psalms. Now, that's a word to describe the psalms of cursing. You read these psalms and say, ooh, David, are you really supposed to talk like that? I suppose you love your enemies, don't you? And here you're calling down curses on your enemies. This is David saying, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. When you read that in the psalms, you sometimes say, am I supposed to talk like that? Am I supposed to pray like that? And the interesting thing is here, Paul doesn't shrink away from these imprecatory psalms as though they shouldn't be in the Bible. I had a German professor one time when I was in Germany. And one time there was in a big discussion and he says, Das ist doch ein Pharisäer Psalm. That is a Pharisee psalm. We don't believe those. That's liberalism. Pick and choose in the Bible what you like. Paul doesn't reject the, the imprecatory Psalms. He quotes it. But what he shows us is that the imprecatory Psalm is the judgment of God. Not just David's animosity against an enemy. David, as a prophet and a Holy Spirit-filled person, is speaking God's judgment on Israel. So be careful they are not necessarily what they seem, and you need to be delicate about what you find fault with in the Bible. Like, don't do it. Next paragraph. So I ask. Did they stumble? He's going to explain now. He's just said the remnant exists because of election. And the others have been hardened. In fact, we're going to see in 1125, a hardening has come upon Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. You wonder why Jewish evangelism is hard today? One of the reasons is a hardening is on Israel until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. But here he says, so what do we make of that? What's the reason? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. The goal of God here is not the destruction of Israel. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Whoa! So God has made the hardness and the rejection of the Messiah by Israel a means of saving the nations. Go back and read some of the parables of Jesus. 
Remember? The wedding feast? Go out and invite them. Come to the feast. Jewish people, the Messiah is here. I just bought some oxen. I have to go see them. I just married a wife. I have to go talk to her. I just bought a field. I have to go get it. I'm not coming. And the host, it says, was angry and said to his servants, go out and beat the hedges and bring them in from anywhere. My house will be filled. Have you ever thought that the Gentile mission was born out of anger? At the Jewish people. If my people reject me, stiff arm me. I'll get my house full. I'll raise up from stones, children of Abraham. I'll go to America. I'll go to pagans in Sweden. I'll go to man-eating Vikings and do it. I will get them from China. I'll get them from Africa. I will have a house full. And the, the Gentile mission is born out of this hardness. It's not in order that they might fall. God's got a plan. And that's what I hope we can Get at in the time we have left. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Oh, so it's going to work back. First, you get the Jews disobedient and now you get salvation to the Gentiles and the nations in order that now the Jews will see Gentiles, these uncircumcised catfish eating unclean nations. Enjoying the promises made to us Jews. No way we're going to have them back. I preached on this a few months ago. And a Jewish man came up to me. Christian Jew. Big smile on his face said, I've hardly heard anybody preach on that. Let me tell you, that's exactly how I got saved. And he told me the story of how he was invited to a, a Jewish Christian gathering. And he watched all these Jewish Christians talking about Abraham and his promises in the Messiah, which they were enjoying. And, and then there were Gentiles in the group. And he looked around these people and the Holy Spirit obviously opened his heart. And he said, those are my promises. With these Gentiles enjoying forgiveness of sin through Jesus, the Messiah, those are mine. That's exactly what he means here by jealous and and I'll just go ahead a little bit down the chapter and say, God's going to do that for millions of Jews. I believe. But I'm giving my secret away. <laughs> now, if their trespass means riches for the world. Here it is again. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, there it is again. How much more will their full inclusion mean. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous. So that's one of his strategies. He knows that he goes into a town. He preaches first at the synagogue, though God's called him to be a apostle to the Gentiles because to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So I'm going to preach in the synagogue first when they run him out, which they always did because a hardening has come upon Israel. A few women, it says, a few men, so a few, a remnant. And then he turns to the Gentiles in order to make that synagogue jealous. 
everything I just offered you in Jesus by way of acceptance with God through faith in his redeeming work. You reject. I'm going to offer it to the nations and they're going to have the Holy Spirit fall upon them. Rejoice, experience wonderful gifts and go to heaven and you watch. And some of you, God will, I pray that I might save some. Some will be jealous and be saved for their rejection If their rejection means reconciliation for the world. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, um, let me see if I can draw this out here for you. Because we went over it so fast, you need to see it. Verse 11, if I can draw this. Verse 11 I'm going to use abbreviations. Jewish trespass. Trespass leads to Gentile salvation, which leads to Jewish jealousy, which leads where? Well, we have to go to verse 12 to see that verse 12. You can just follow in your text, perhaps. Verse 12 says their trespass. So Jewish trespass again leads where? To riches for the Gentiles. And says it again, Jewish failure. I'm still in verse 12. Failure leads to riches for the This was world. This is Gentiles. Which together lead. Now, it doesn't mention jealousy. So we're going to we're going to leave that blank. Go down here to maybe I drew it too far to fullness, the full inclusion, the fullness of the Jews. That's an amazing. That's the first statement we've seen. So now the third argument has just appeared. In support of God's not rejecting his people. The first time we've seen this is verse 12. The full inclusion of the Jews is coming. What will their full inclusion mean? What more? And I'll just put more there. Now, verse 15 tells us the more. Verse 15. Their rejection. So Jewish rejection. Leads to what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation for the world or for Gentiles. Which leads to Jewish acceptance. God's going to accept them someday. Which leads to what he calls life from the dead. I think that's the resurrection. Now, that's an amazing plan. We're going to see it summed up several times in the coming verses, but I want you to see it here. Here is Jewish hardening and rejection and failure and unbelief. It's what gives Paul grief, constant grief and pain, even though he knows where it's leading, which is why there can be joy. Billy Graham, broken hip, pain, tears. Where were you? I was fixing Los Angeles. 
joy and pain, joy and pain. Our lives, big, the big historical picture where it leads is first Gentile salvation, riches for the Gentiles, riches for the world, reconciliation for the world. So you have that event next. One time, he says, as a means to this fullness is jealousy. And then verses 12 and 15, this reconciliation for Gentiles, Gentile salvation, your salvation is leading to the salvation of Israel. The full number of the Jews comes in and Jewish acceptance, which leads then to something more. What more will it mean? Answer, we will be raised from the dead. All of us together, all the redeemed Jew and Gentile. So. I want you to see that it's going to be summed up more clearly when we get further on down in the argument. So let's go there to eleven seventeen to 24. Oh, I skipped verse 16. Um, I think I'll just leave it because I think verse 16 simply says that all Israel is going to be saved in another way. That if if the original root of the Abrahamic covenant was holy, set apart for God, so will the branches be ultimately. But. Let's go ahead where it's more clear. Verse 17. But if some of the branches. I do need the picture of the branches, don't I? Better get that up here. Verse 16. If the dough offered its first fruits is holy. She's got one image of, of dough with uh, leaven in it. Then the whole lump will be uh, holy. And if the root. I think that's the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, if they were set apart as holy to the Lord, so are the branches, even though we know many branches have been broken off. So I think that's a promise that someday branches, all of them are going to be grafted in. And now he says, what if some of the branches were broken off? And that's what's causing the problem of this whole unit. Many Jews are broken off from the covenant. The rich root of the tree with all of its saving grace, they're broken off. They're not included. What if that? And what if you, a wild olive shoot, you Johnny come lately Gentile who never had any natural claim on being a part of this tree of salvation and covenant? What if you were grafted in among the others, which you were? And now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. You are a child of Abraham. All the covenant promises made to Israel are yours. I read the Old Testament as my book. Every promise of grace in the Old Testament I take to be mine in Jesus Christ. I'm united to the tree of covenant and promise and salvation grafted in owing to no merit of my wild olive-nish at all. So, Piper, what what should you do? Answer, do not be arrogant toward the branches. That's the main point of that sentence. If you are, that is a statement. Number one, no boasting in yourself. Number two, no anti, finish it, Semitism. 
Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Who are the branches? That's Temple Israel on Hennepin Avenue. With all the rabbis that I've gotten to know there over the years. Who are so hostile to people like me. Who believe they need to believe in Jesus. To be true Jews. You want to get in trouble at a lunch? (laughs) Sitting across from a PhD rabbi from the University of Chicago. Tell him he needs to believe in Jesus or he's perishing. And that he's not a true child of Abraham. Unless he believes in the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. You You want to get in trouble? And I'll tell you, we are in a, we live in a weak and smarmy evangelical age where relationships are everything and truth is way down on the agenda and we'll avoid criticism at all costs in America. Just don't say anything that will ruffle any feathers. Don't say anything that will divide anybody. Don't say anything that will cause there to be ill will in the air. Well, that may look loving because it's soft. It is cruel to the max because it sentences people to hell. If you don't tell a Jewish person that you know and love at work that they need Jesus, their Messiah, and take them to Isaiah 53 and with tears in your eyes say, why would you die? This is yours before it's mine. Come on. But not arrogance. Not boasting over the branches and say, we Baptists across town over here at Bethlehem, we've got the covenant promises and you don't. <laughs> that, that whole, whatever form or tone it takes, Paul is saying, evidently, that's a danger. He dwells on this a long time. Let's let's dwell with him for a few minutes. Let's finish reading this and then come back and see how you can avoid that pride. If you are, if you are, if you're going to boast over the branches, the broken off branches, the unbelieving Jews, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. When you will, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Now, everything on whether that's a good sentence hangs on your tone of voice. Because that's a true statement. Absolutely true. By their failure, salvation has come to the Gentiles. By their being broken off, we were grafted in. That's a true statement. And he says, that's true. (laughs) They were broken off because of their unbelief. And you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud. There it is again. Don't become proud, but stand in awe, literally fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Let's read the next one because it says the same, the same thing. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. There's perseverance. You must continue. You can't just say, once saved, always saved. 
I prayed a prayer. I walked the aisle. I signed a card. Now I can live like the devil. That is not regenerate talk. You must continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And I'm not going to linger there. I know that sounds like you lose your salvation. Just like the woman who sat over there and asked me about Galatians 5, 4. Fallen from grace. And my simple statement is that when you talk about this tree, when you talk about belonging to the covenant, there are measures of adherence to the body of Christ, to the work of God, to the Bible, which can be pretty high level, significant adherence and not be born again. So that it is proper to talk about being cut off if you become arrogant, apostatize, fall away, reject the church, reject the Messiah. That's it's okay to describe that as being cut off. You never were really drinking in a saving way from the rich root of the olive tree, but you plugged yourself in to a church, to a Bible study, to a diaconate, did lots of nice moral things to have a place in the community. And Jesus says to you at the last day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And they are stunned. So I don't think that means you lose your salvation. I think it's a warning that you can be fake. You can be a hypocrite. There is such a thing as hypocrisy in the church and in the ministry. Even if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Here comes this promise for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what was by nature, a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, which almost all of you in this room have been, how much more will these, the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? I think that means there's coming a generation. There's coming a day when millions of broken off branches are going to be moved upon by the power of the Holy Spirit as the Redeemer out of Zion reveals himself. They will draw to Christ. They will confess him and they will join the church. This is what makes me not a dispensationalist. At least not a historic dispensationalist, which says there are two tracks Two redeeming plans, two ways towards God. One is Jewish and one is the body of Christ, the mystery people of God. And God has a plan for these people and they get raptured out and and have the marriage supper of the lamb and have a special uh, plan. And these people come another route. I don't think that's what this is teaching. I think this teaches that there's coming a day when God will bring Israel into the people of God. In other words, graft. There's one tree. That's the easiest way to say it. There's one tree. There's one covenant. Abraham to the children of Abraham. The one tree has some Jews broken off and some Jews still in. The one tree has Gentiles grafted in and later lots of Jews grafted back in. It's one tree, one covenant, one promise, one way of salvation, one people of God forever. Not two plans. And I think that's what most most people understand and believe today, even even in places where once dispensationalism was taught in a in a more rigid way. It's not anymore taught that way. Now, let me step back and ask a question about this pride and anti-Semitism. Did you see the four arguments against it? 
Let's just review them. One. The root supports you. Verse 18. You don't support the root. You Gentile. Don't you dare boast over the branches. Number two. God will not spare you if you become arrogant and boastful and show that you're not really of the spirit of Christ. And so don't boast. Third. You stand only by faith, not by your Gentilish distinctives. And faith is a childlike, desperate despair of your own distinctives and casting yourself on mercy. And that kind of person can't boast. Fourth, they will be grafted back. And your salvation is just a means to that end. So you better like them. Because they're coming back. And here's the clearest statement of it. 25 to 27. And here, for the third time, he's, a, he's, he's warning us Gentiles. There must be something about us that makes Paul concerned with pride. It's the third time now. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, you Gentile Christians. I want you to understand a mystery. It hadn't been revealed and now it's being revealed. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. If you exalt yourself in conceit over these broken off branches, you totally misunderstand God's design in your salvation. God's design in your salvation is their salvation. And when the full number of your ilk comes in, I'm moving on Israel. In this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, let me be real honest here and give you an amillennial standard interpretation and the one I think is right. And I have people in my church who don't agree with me. on this. I have staff members who don't agree with me on this. OK, so I'm not going to get mad at anybody here if you go the other way. One way to understand this is all Israel here is taken to mean the church, including Gentiles. And. Now he's saying not that there'll be a great conversion of ethnic Israel at the end. That's what I believe this means. Because I think that's the way the flow of the thought has been going through the whole chapter, especially back in verses 11 to 16 of this chapter, that if the root was holy, all the branches will be holy. And when the full number comes in, then there'll be a resurrection. I think that kind of language talks about ethnic Israel. But. A possible way to understand it is to say that this all Israel is really the church, including Jew and Gentile, will be saved. And so in this way, that happens. I'm suggesting that you consider very seriously that this all Israel means that there's coming a day in which corporately and ethnically the Jews alive in a given generation are going to experience an amazing revival. I don't think it means that every single individual one of them has to be saved any more than all Israel. Like when it says all Israel came out to John the Baptist. Well, we know that a sick mom and her baby stayed home. It just means it looked like when you saw the city, they'd all come out. There's going to be this mass return. That's I think it means. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And I just admit there's some things there I don't understand about how it relates in timing to the second coming. 
So I'll leave it open. I don't want to nail down the details, but somehow near the end of the age, in close proximity with Christ's return, I believe there's going to be a tremendous return of Israel. Now, we need to hasten towards these glorious last two paragraphs. Here's the summary, and it is astonishing. And I'll say a word about the political nation of Israel here, which is what some of you ask about. As regards the gospel, they are enemies. That's contemporary Israel today in the Near East and in my city, in your city. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God, enemies of Christ. For of God, for your sake, as regards election and what God plans to do with his people, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now, that does not mean every Jew is saved who's ever lived. The whole problem of these three chapters has been created by the fact that some are accursed and cut off from Christ. The question is, is when God said to Abraham, I'm going to save you and your posterity. And when again and again and again and again, he made promises to the corporate people. Is there no future for that? And he's saying, yes, there is. And by election, there's going to be a ingathering of the totality of those who are corporately at enmity with God. So he's thinking corporately here as a mass. Israel today is stiff arming Jesus. They're hardening. They're rejected. They're hell bound. And Paul says it with tears and sorrow. But as a mass, as a corporate entity alive someday, there's going to be an amazing awakening to the Messiah. They will look upon him whom they've pierced and weep as for an only son and a nation will be created in a day. For the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. Now, here are amazing summary statements before we close with the doxology. These are amazing. If you want to if you want to help somebody understand the sovereign providence of God in human history over belief and unbelief, take them to these verses. I need to draw these too, probably, but let me see. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God. So let's put Gentile disobedience. Just as you were one time disobedient to God. But now have received mercy. I can't put that next because it says because of their disobedience. So the next thing we have is Jewish disobedience. And then it says, because of that, what? You have received mercy. Gentile mercy. Because of their disobedience. Now he says it again. So they too have now been disobedient. Let's put that here. Jewish disobedience. This is verse 31. This is verse 30. They have been disobedient. And this is the great, amazing phrase. In order that. Why? By the mercy shown to you. So we've seen that right there. Gentile mercy. 
by the mercy shown to you. They may now receive mercy. Jews. Get mercy. We got again. Four steps and look at it. Acts 14, God let the nations go their own way. And there was a great multi-thousand year period where God worked with Israel, letting the nations go their own way in disobedience and idolatry. Just let them go. Gave them witnesses with rain and seed time and harvest, but basically worked with Israel. So that's the Gentile disobedience era. When Christ came, Jews rejected him by and large. And so Jewish disobedience came after that. That Jewish disobedience led to God opening the sluice gates of mercy for the nations. And salvation is coming to the Gentiles, the nations all over the world today. This is the great period of Gentile mission. If you wonder what the meaning of this period in history is, it is missions. The meaning of this era is Jewish temporary hardening, go get the nations. When the full number of the Gentiles comes in, verse 25, then mercy to Jews. And then the resurrection and the coming of the Lord. But here is what you need to see. What does that mean right there? So they have been disobedient. In order that you Gentiles might receive mercy. By the mercy shown to you, I'm sorry, I didn't underline it right. By the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they, Jews, might receive mercy. Whose purpose is that? It can't be the Jews. They didn't decide to be disobedient so that I'd get saved. This is God's purpose. Disobedience was God's idea. This happened for this to happen. God's got a plan here. And his plan was to let Israel let to let in the after the fall of Adam and everybody's a sinner in the universe except God and his holy angels. He's letting the Gentiles go their own way. Working with Israel. Then Israel rejects him and he works to bring mercy to the Gentiles. And then by jealousy and plans after that, he brings salvation to the Jews. Why did he do it this way? And the answer is to shut the mouth of Jew and Gentile so that they would never boast again. Because every time a Gentile starts to boast, God says, I'm going to use Jewish people to save you. I'm going to use Jewish people to save you. By the mercy shown to Jews, you're going to get saved. By the disobedience of Jews and the salvation of Jews, you got saved. So, Gentile mercy comes from Jewish Disobedience. And this Jewish mercy here leads to salvation and 
resurrection from the dead for Gentiles. And if a Jew starts to get uppity and proud and say, we're the, we're the elect people, we're the chosen ones, we're, we're the children of Abraham, you can't, John the Baptist, you can't judge us. Then he says, I'm going to make your disobedience the means of saving those people you're boasting over. It's a way of shutting the mouth of every proud boast of Gentile and Jew. And alternatively, it's a way of exalting the mercy of God. So you get verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This massive group of Gentiles, this massive group of saved Israel are experiencing mercy. And that's why they came out of disobedience the way they did. And if that blows your mind, it's supposed to. So here's the end of the chapter and the end of the unit. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Let me just sum this up for you and we'll move into a time of worship. Let's start with statement number one. From him. And through him are all things stop right there and move backwards. Because from him and through him are all things, including disobedience. Nobody has ever given anything to God that he should be repaid. Everything's from him. You can't give God anything that he should be indebted to you. And therefore, the last thing you could ever be expected to give him is advice. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? Is it not strange and awful that the one thing Paul chooses to say we cannot give to the Lord is the one thing most unbelievers give him most often, namely advice. Where were you? Where were you when that accident happened? Where were you when that cancer happened? Where were you when that marriage fell apart? Presuming to be wiser than God as to what he should have done or where he should have been. That is so prevalent. And Paul says, you you can't become God's advisor. You can't become God's counselor. Who do you think you are? Which leads to the conclusion, how unsearchable are his judgments. Now, just sat there amazed, Tom, that, that you would say in front of all these people, It was a, it was of God that he broke his hip. You're a strange person <laughs> to have the courage to see the obvious and be bold enough to say it. Praise God. Strange, yeah. Who can explain? I mean, God could have delayed the crusade another way. And therefore, oh, how bottomless are his riches and wisdom and 
Now we close. To Him. To Him are all things. That means everything exists for His glory. To Him be glory forever. The end of the argument of Romans 9 to 11 is not simply the Word of God stands and His covenant is true. Reason number one, because not all Israel is Israel, but God's chosen people are Israel. Reason number two, there's always a remnant to whom the promises apply. Reason number three, He's going to save all Israel someday so that every promise in the Old Testament that looked big and comprehensive about a whole people, they're true. And His Word stands. Israel today is a covenant-breaking people. They should be treated nationally with justice and mercy the way we treat all nations. No carte blanche should be given to Israel today. They cannot be put in a category where they can do no wrong. They relate to God the way we relate to God as a pagan nation called America. God governs all nations. When you're establishing policies with a covenant-breaking people, you establish them the same way you do with Russia and Albania and Iraq. Justice. Mercy. No special privileges. God will see to it in His time that the special privileges are given when they cease to break covenant with their God. And Ungodliness is banished from Israel and they look upon their Messiah and say he is Lord. Then Jesus will arrive and have the authority to give them a land. We don't have that authority. Many questions there, but back to the doxology. If God's word stands, then he can be trusted and he is glorious. So as Joe comes, let's pray. Father, take us to yourself and teach us these things. These have been weighty matters we've spent time on together. They're all about your glory, your greatness, your depth, your unfathomable grace and mercy and justice and wisdom and wrath and love and truth. And we praise you. And we want to live for you. While you're standing, let me just say one more thing to make you the uh, whole complete. We began by saying Romans 1 to 8 is precious beyond words, isn't it? Nobody can separate us from the love of Christ. Tribulation, distress, sword famine, nakedness, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And none of that's going to come true if God's word doesn't stand. If the promise we just celebrated falls And I hope that you go home saying it will never fall. It is rooted down so deep in the grace and sovereignty of God. It can never fall. Therefore, 
I beseech you by the mercies of God. Present your bodies to God as living sacrifices acceptable to him because it's your reasonable service of worship. Don't be conformed to this age anymore, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect, namely mercy. Be a merciful people. Don't take the glorious doctrine of your unconditional, undeserved election and turn it into a charter of us and them. Rather say, he chose me, finding nothing worthy in me. I will now lay my life down for my worst enemy and show people what the love of God is really like. That's my closing exhortation to you. May God bless you.